Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And a baseball story for all time. A story that teaches us a lesson. And a story that begs closure. The story of band baseball legend Shoeless Joe Jackson. Just for a moment, how would you answer the following question? We learn from the time we're young that we're judged by the kind of company we keep but I'm not so sure that's true of everybody when you're with a professional team within reach of a pennant. All of you need to be thinking and performing and acting as one winning ticket. If a few decide to throw a game, it implicates you to get support of the others. Without your okay, and you don't participate, how is that your fault? That's at the heart of the question which has been rolling around baseball for just over 100 years now after shoeless Joe Jackson and seven of his teammates on the Chicago White Sox were accused of cheating or conspiring to cheat as they conspired to throw the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Red Sox, the team that won the series five games to four when the winner of the best of eight games, not seven as today, was declared world champion. Recent research has pretty much proven that Joe Jackson and at least one other player did not participate by helping to throw the game. That at least one newspaper printed some damning information which was not at all factual. And that the record of Joe Jackson's play during the World Series was spotless. In fact, worthy of MVP. He did testify to a grand jury, however, that while packing up to go home after the series, one of those eight players dropped $5,000 on the floor in front of him And he, having been poor all his life and grossly underpaid, took it and packed it up. He also testified that when he heard of the scandal, he tried to get an appointment with the club owner, Comiskey, to tell him, but he was refused. Then he asked to be removed from the lineup for the series. He was refused again. Shoeless Joe was never proven guilty. In fact, he was proven innocent. But Major League Baseball continues to deny Joe any access to the Hall of Fame and the player whom Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Ted Williams said was the greatest hitter that ever played the game, has been shamed for over a century. He was accused of wrongdoing, acquitted by a jury of his peers, then accused of cheating by the team's owner, Charles A. Comiskey, and then banished from baseball by a newly appointed commissioner 
no doubt trying to make a name for himself in a sport that had up till now not had an overseer, and was rife with gambling. If anyone in sports deserves a fair judgment, it would be shoeless Joe Jackson, say many. This fact wasn't lost on Canadian author W.B. Kinsella when he wrote Shoeless Joe, a story which was bought and adapted into a 1989 movie titled Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner. Scriptwriter Phil Alden Robinson had read Shoeless Joe in 1981 and liked it so much that he brought it to 20th Century Fox, which turned it down originally, but with some adaptations approved by Kinsella, made it palatable for Universal Pictures, which accepted the project in 1987 and hired USC coach Ron Dedue as baseball advisor. Dedue brought along World Series champ and USC alumnus Don Buford to coach the actors. And since Shoeless Joe is behind what the movie is all about, we'll share a little of that story before we get to Shoeless Joe's life and career. It'll make the movie more interesting the next time you see it. I suppose many of you fans know that a pro exhibition game will be played August 13th this year, 2020, the first ever pro baseball game for Iowa. Probably sold out by now, but look for it on TV. They're building a facility that'll hold 8,000 fans within walking distance of where the Field of Dreams was filmed. And here's that plot. And here is the plot. Ray Kinsella lives with his wife Annie and daughter Karen on their Iowa corn farm. He's troubled by the relationship with his late father, John Kinsella, who was a devoted baseball fan, a relationship which was never resolved before his dad died. Walking through his cornfield one evening, he hears a voice whispering, if you build it, he will come, and sees a vision of a baseball diamond in his field and the great shoeless Joe Jackson, who was his father's idol. Ray figures that if he builds a baseball field, shoeless Joe Jackson can play baseball again, and since his remote Iowa cornfield seems to be drawing ghosts now like hungry grasshoppers, maybe he'll be able to see his dad too. Annie is skeptical, because she can't see or hear all this that's going on, but agrees to him plowing part of the corn to build a baseball field despite the financial loss. As he builds it, he tells Karin about the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Months later, Shoeless Joe appears again and asking if others can play. Man, Ray says yes, and Joe returns with seven additional Black Sox players, all guys who are banned from play from Major League Baseball forever. Annie's brother, Mark, unable to see the players, warns that Ray is going bankrupt. A lot of subplots are added which introduce new characters, but these boil down to Ray never reconciling with his father, having broken up their close relationship by calling Shoeless Joe a crook, something which his father never agreed with. It all ends as Ray and his dad get a second chance at a game of catch while a line of cars is approaching to see one heck of an all-star game among the non-living. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. 
Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. The movie was nominated for three Academy Awards and remains an American favorite. And now our story of Joseph Jefferson Jackson, born July 16, 1887, and died December 5, 1951, all in North Carolina. Jackson was born in Pickens County, South Carolina, the oldest son in the family. His father George was a sharecropper, and he moved the family to Pelzer, South Carolina, while Jackson was still a baby. A few years later, the family moved to a company town called Brandon Mill on the outskirts of Greenville, South Carolina, where houses and a company store were offered to employees of the mills. And, of course, there was little to nothing left for the family after the rent and the cost of food and necessities. An attack of the measles almost killed Joe when he was ten. He was in bed for two months, paralyzed, but he was nursed back to full health by his mother. Starting at the age of six or seven, Jackson was working in one of the town's textile mills as a linthead, which is a derogatory name for a mill hand. Family finances required Joe to take 12-hour shifts for the mill, and since education at the time was a luxury the Jackson family couldn't afford, Jackson was uneducated. He couldn't even sign his name. His lack of education ultimately became an issue throughout Jackson's life. It even affected the value of his memorabilia in the collectibles market, because Jackson was illiterate. He often had his wife sign his signature. His signature remains extremely rare today. Consequently, anything actually autographed by Jackson himself still brings a premium when sold, including one autograph which was sold for $23,500 in 1990. So start looking for those old baseball cards, folks. In restaurants, rather than ask someone to read the menu to him, he would wait until his teammates ordered and then order one of the items that he'd heard. In 1900, when he was 13 years old, his mother was approached by one of the owners of the Brandon Mill asking if she would provide permission for Joe to play for them, and he started to play for the Mill's baseball team. They had seen him playing with other kids from the Mill and noticed that Joe could play extremely well. He was the youngest player on the team. He was paid $2.50 to play on Saturdays, which would be equivalent to about 77 bucks today. He was originally a pitcher, but one day he accidentally broke another player's arm with a fastball, and no one wanted to bat against him, so the manager of the team placed him in the outfield. His hitting ability made him a celebrity around town, and he was no slouch at fielding either. Around that time he was given a baseball bat which he named Black Betsy, and that bat stayed with him through his career. He was compared to Champ Osteen, another player from the Mills who had made it to the majors. Joe moved from mill team to mill team in search of better pay, playing semi-professional baseball by 1905. In an interview published in the October 1949 edition of Sport Magazine, Jackson recalled he got his nickname during a mill game played in Greenville, South Carolina. Jackson had blisters on his foot from a new pair of cleats, which hurt so much that he took his shoes off before he was at bat. As play continued, a heckling fan noticed Jackson running to third base in his socks and shouted, 
You shoeless son of a gun, you! And the resulting nickname, Shoeless Joe, stuck, and it stuck with him throughout the remainder of his life. In 1908, Shoeless Joe really started to come around. He began his professional baseball career with the Greenville Spinners of the Carolina Association. He married 15-year-old Katie Wynn and eventually signed with Connie Mack to play for the Philadelphia Athletics. Every time I come across the name of Connie Mack, I remember an old Sunday school teacher I had when my family lived outside of Philadelphia. His name was Colin Campbell. We would do our best as kids to divert his Sunday school stories to sports stories of his days working in Connie Mack Stadium. He was the scoreboard keeper, so his job was to place the large wooden slats with the numbers on them on their appropriate pegs. Balls, strikes, outs, runs. And he knew the players and a lot of the stories. This was in the days before digital scoreboards and TV screens, as you've already guessed. For the first two years of his career, Jackson had some trouble adjusting to life with the athletics. Reports conflict as to whether he just didn't like the big cities or if he was bothered by hazing from his teammates. Probably a little bit of both. The athletics gave up on Jackson in 1910 and traded him to the Cleveland Naps. He spent most of 1910 with the New Orleans Pelicans of the Southern Association, where he won the batting title and led the team to the pennant. Late in that season of 1910, he was called up to the bigs. He appeared in 20 games and hit 387. Joe Jackson was on fire. In 1911, Jackson's first full Major League Baseball season, he set a number of rookie records. His 408 batting average that season is a record that still stands for a rookie season, and he was good for second overall in the league behind Ty Cobb. His 468 on base percentage led the league. The following season, 1912, Jackson batted 395 and led the American League in hits, triples, and total bases. On April 20, 1912, Jackson scored the first run in Tiger Stadium. The next year, he led the league with 197 hits and a 551 slugging percentage. Now, a slugging percentage is a little different than a batting average. The slugging percentage adds up the number of bases achieved per hit and then divides by the number of at-bats. This is kept to recognize hitters who get a lot of extra base hits. In August of 1915, Jackson was traded to the Chicago White Sox. Two years later, Jackson and the White Sox won the American League pennant and also the World Series. During that series, Jackson hit 307 as the White Sox defeated the New York Giants. Jackson missed most of the 1918 season while working in a shipyard because of World War I. In 1919, he came back strongly to post a 351 average during the regular season and 375 with perfect fielding in the World Series. However, the heavily favored White Sox lost the series to the Cincinnati Reds. The next season, Jackson belted 382 and was leading the American League in triples when he was suspended, along with seven other members of the White Sox, after allegations surfaced that those guys had helped to throw the previous World Series in 1919. The news shocked the public, shocked the players, and shocked Major League Baseball. After the White Sox lost the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds, Jackson and seven other White Sox players were accused of accepting $5,000 each, which would be equivalent to $74,000 today, to throw the series. In September of 1920, 
a grand jury was convened to investigate the allegations. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Behind much of the team frustration that resulted in the scandal was a growing resentment for owner Comiskey, who had become well-known for his cheapskate ways. The players had no union and no free agency and no player agents, so owners could pretty much take advantage of them whenever they wanted, and Comiskey took advantage every chance he got. For instance, when the uniform laundry bill got too high for Kaminsky, he ordered all the players to pay for their own laundry, and they revolted by refusing to wash their uniforms, which prompted a sports writer to give the team the nickname the Black Sox. The White Sox starting pitcher Eddie Sicott was promised a $10,000 bonus by Kaminsky if he could win 30 games during the 1919 season. But when he reached 29 wins, Kaminsky had him benched for two weeks to avoid paying him. Kaminsky also promised an additional bonus if the team won the 1919 pennant, which they did, clinching the AL title from the Cleveland Indians. But the only bonus they received was a case of stale champagne waiting in the locker room. There had been grumbling all through that 1919 season. There were two distinct cliques on the White Sox. One group was led by second baseman Eddie Collins, who had been educated at Columbia College and who was the White Sox's highest paid player. Then there was catcher Ray Schalk, and pitchers Red Faber and Dickie Kerr as well. The other clique, which included Joe Jackson, was led by first baseman Chick Gandel. Gandel's group was mainly undereducated and underpaid, while Collins' group was savvier regarding their contracts. It obviously was a huge help just being able to read them. It was Chuck Gandel's group that was doing most of the griping and bitching about Comiskey and his ways, and it was Gandel who initiated the fix on the 1919 World Series. While the White Sox were approaching their series with Cincinnati, Gandal approached a man called Sporty Sullivan, informing him that the White Sox were willing to throw the World Series for $80,000. And two other gamblers, smiling Bill Burns and Billy Maharg, agreed to put up the money needed to cover the cost. Those three men then contacted New York gambling kingpin Arnold Rothstein, and Rothstein agreed to foot the bill for the fix. You might remember the gambler named... Meyer Wolfstein, in the book The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And some people say that character was modeled after Arnold Rothstein. When the OK from the gamblers came back to Gandal, he started recruiting players. Gandal held a meeting in his hotel room on September 21st while at the Ansonia Hotel in New York City. And that was a meeting which included those going ahead and those who just wanted to listen. And a little bit of money was handed out for temptation. It is said that Buck Weaver is the only player who attended who did not accept any money. How much money was handed out is not known. It might have been $100, it might have been $10. But Buck Weaver was later banned with the others for knowing about it, but not reporting it. Shoeless Joe never attended that meeting, but Gandal was pushing that Joe was in on the deal. On October 1st, when the series started, Sicotti, who was in on it, was pitching and he threw a wild one that hit the second Cincinnati batter in the back. 
This was a signal to gamblers that the fix was in. Sakati made a bad throw to second in the fourth, missing an easy double play, and sports writers started taking notes. During the games, pitcher Lefty Williams, one of the eight men who had agreed to throw the series, lost three games, a series record, while rookie Dickie Kerr, who was not a part of it, won both of his starts. The fixtures were supposed to receive payments after each game lost, and by game four, it became obvious that they were holding back. After game five, angry players involved in the fix tried to double-cross the gamblers, so they won game six and seven of the best-of-eight series. Then the White Sox lost game eight. The players involved in the fix received $5,000 each, and Gandal took $35,000 for himself. Nothing more happened until the end of the 1920 season, just as the White Sox were about to reach another pennant, as Kaminsky suddenly suspended the seven men who had remained in the majors. Gandal, by the way, the ringleader, had left and was playing semi-pro. A grand jury investigation was being heavily covered by the papers. The trial was held in Chicago, a perfectly wrong place to hold a criminal trial even today, and was rocked when supposed confessions of Sicott and Jackson went missing from the Cook County Courthouse. At any rate, the trial was concluded. Gambler Bill Burns took the stand and admitted what he knew about the fix, and then the jury deliberated. And after three hours, the jury announced that the verdicts of not guilty would be applied to all the defendants. But baseball's image had been tarnished, and baseball needed to make it right. A new commissioner named Kennesaw Mountain Landis was appointed to quickly quash the gambling problem, and this was his decree. Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players or gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball again. Today the petition still asks that shoeless Joe Jackson's name be reinstated into Major League Baseball and that his incredible record be honored. Many believe he was duped into the fix, that he never asked for money. He never met with the fixers or spoke to the gamblers. He had a series leading 375 average, including that World Series only home run against Cincinnati. He threw out five base runners and handled 30 chances in the outfield with zero errors. And if you've ever seen the ball gloves those guys used in 1919, with barely any webbing at all, huge bulky unwieldy fingers, 30 perfect catches out there is a wonder. Three of Joe's six RBIs came in the lost games, and he was robbed of more FBIs only by a spectacular outfield catch. Well, you've heard both sides, so you can decide. The White Sox suffered from the Black Sox curse for another 40 years, unable to win another AL championship until 1959. As for me, I think baseball needed to be cleaned up, and that that was the only effective way to do it. On the other hand, there's a limit to all felonies and crimes, and baseball should have its limits as well. There's a lot of fans who will tell you that they've seen a video clip of a young baseball fan tugging on Shoeless Joe's shirt as he walks out of court in the custody of a sheriff. And the kid is saying, with tears in his eyes, Say it ain't so, Joe. But actually, the only time those words were said 
They were offered by Charlie Owens of the Chicago Daily News, who wrote a tribute to Shoeless Joe and titled it, Say It Ain't So, Joe. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We always appreciate good reviews. Please don't hesitate to send us those reviews. And also, please think of us in this new year by heading over to patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork.com where our true fans pledge a couple dollars a month to help keep us going. We would appreciate your help and support over there very much. If you haven't been a Patreon supporter before, maybe it's time to be a patron of the arts. We do quite a bit here at 1001 Stories Network. As you know, we do this show, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We do 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, which gets huge ratings and numbers worldwide. And to that, we added 1001 Greatest Love Stories, another short story specialty podcast. And we have 1001 Stories for the Road, which is our long-format book podcast. And there, for the most part, we choose adventures, whether it's Sherlock Holmes' Hound of the Baskervilles, or Tarzan, or Jack London's Call of the Wild. You'll find some great stories over there, and they make wonderful listening, whether to and from work, or on the road traveling, or just enjoying life. All of our shows help to expand your knowledge and world experience, and that's pretty much my purpose in doing this, to get people away from that TV and into history, great stories, and literature. And I think it's working. Thanks, everyone. 1001 Heroes will be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we'll see you then.